A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is, it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we're in the second Sunday of Lent, this very strange season in the life of the church in which we, uh, we are imitating the life of Christ, and how Christ was ever seeking to draw nearer and nearer to God. And while oftentimes for Christ this was reflected in, in uh, his times of seclusion when he would go away to pray or fast, it's also reflected in those times in which Christ was drawing nearer to God in every act of kindness he performed for the least, the lost, the lonely, and the unloved. And so during this season, we reflect that, we imitate that. But one question I have been hesitant to ask myself while thinking about Christ drawing nearer to God throughout his life, at each point in his life, and it is beautiful how many glimpses of that we get to see in Scripture, but as Christ drew nearer to God, I've often wondered, what kind of God did he find? What kind of God did Jesus find as he drew nearer and nearer? One thing that I've been surprised by, authentically surprised by in my time in ministry, is, is that most Christians believe that they know exactly who God is and therefore have no desire to learn anything more about their God. That for some reason we get this, we get this Sunday school education about our faith and we, and we you know, grapple with that as much as anybody can and then we kind of hold on to that. 
And we, tr we cherish that and we treasure that and we say, this is who God is and God can't be anything more. And so uh, another thing that I have found surprising in ministry, at least in my own ministerial journey, is that the God I once knew, yes, the God I once knew, no longer looks like me, but looks like a lot more. And here is what I mean by that. By all of these things, as I've been inquiring as to what kind of God Jesus found whenever he drew nearer to God, as I've been reflecting on the fact that most Christians, once they meet God, wherever they end up finding God, that's as far as they let God grow, and that's as far as they want to know God. And in my own experience with God, that initially my God looked a lot like me, I wonder what kind of God we're drawing nearer to. You see, in our faith, we often make God in our own image rather than allowing God to make us in God's image. And so I want you to imagine for a second, imagine you're standing in front of God. What does God look like? Is God this this old white man with a really long beard sitting on a really fancy but probably uncomfortable chair? Is God more of like this ball of energy? Does God look like a person? Does God look like something from our past? Does God look like something from our imagination? What does God look like to you? Because the thing is, we often make God in our own image. We have this, this idea of what God looks like, what God is, how God acts, how God loves, and that's as far as we're willing to take God. But the thing that I've come to, found, to find as I've drawn nearer to God in my own life is that, praise God, God looks a lot like more than I could ever imagine. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to take a moment and close your eyes. And if you're afraid of the dark, you can keep your eyes open, but just take a moment and close your eyes. And imagine for a moment the most incredible, the most beautiful, the most majestic, the most breathtaking, unbelievable thing you can think of. And now, think about how God is more than that. Imagine for a moment the most loving, kind, compassionate, merciful, peaceful thing that you can think of. And believe that God is more than that. Imagine perfection, infinity, transcendence, holiness, absoluteness. And know that God is more than that. That God is greater than anything we can imagine. You're welcome to open your eyes now. Try to prevent people from falling asleep as much as possible. God is more than anything we can imagine. That is, by definition, what it means to be God, to be beyond human conception. And yet we are so often so 
comfortable with being settled in the God that we learned about at some point in our life and never allowing God to be more. But God, by definition, is always more. And this is exactly what Nicodemus comes to Jesus to understand in our story from today that Becky so graciously uh, read for us. Nicodemus, a fascinating character, he's, uh, he's a Pharisee, which like we're supposed to know that these are the bad guys in, in the gospel, right? Everybody hates the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were, were teachers. They were rabbis. They were pastors, for, all, for lack of a better term. They were the teachers in the community. And Nicodemus is older in age, and also one of the more well-known Pharisees, particularly in the Galilean region. And, and he's, he's the kind of person, almost celebrity-like in his teachings, that people would flock together to hear the way that he taught about God. And then Nicodemus, this high Pharisee, comes to Jesus after hearing Jesus speak and teach and perform miracles and says, Rabbi, which is already astonishing because Nicodemus is supposed to be the rabbi. He has seniority both by age and status and education, but he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, which means teacher. And he says, we know that you are a teacher sent by God. For there's no other way that these things can be done apart from God. And then he kind of edges in there and says, I want to get to know that God. Because the God that I have been living for all of my life doesn't quite look like your God. And we don't really know what Nicodemus' imagination of God looked like. Maybe it was a God who very easily served just the Jews. Maybe it was a God who was solely spoke to the Pharisees. We don't know. But at any rate, Nicodemus comes to Jesus with this notion that the God that Jesus is talking about is somewhat different than the God I've been talking about. And I want to get to know that God because that God is more. And so Jesus proceeds to tell him that if you want to know this God, then you must understand that God is beyond this world. And there's this really awkward moment in which Nicodemus is like responding to Jesus who says you have to be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, how on earth can anybody, especially an old man like myself, go back into my mother's womb? And, and I can imagine Jesus standing there like, why would you try that? Don't do that. No, that's not what I'm saying, Nicodemus. Get it together. They have this you know, kind of confusing conversation, at least for Nicodemus, in which Jesus is trying to get him to understand that, no, if you're just conceiving about God within the realm of this world, then you're missing out on the entirety of God. Yes, there is some goodness of God here. Every part of creation was made with the love of God, so we can witness that. But God isn't just confined to what we can comprehend and understand, and Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to grasp that. And Nicodemus has to grapple with the question of how do we come to know, to understand? How do we come to know or understand that which is so far beyond us, the God who is transcendent beyond this world? 
How do we come to know that God? Um, this past summer, uh, my wife and I and some friends, we had the fantastic opportunity, fortunately we did it when we did, to go to uh, Italy. Don't go there right now. Um, but we, we were in Rome, and we, uh, I mean, there's just incredible amounts of history all over that part. It's unbelievably beautiful. I'm still processing everything we took in. But one of the, one of the places we got to go to, we went into, the, uh, into Vatican City, and we went to the Sistine Chapel. And the Sistine Chapel is a pretty well-known place in the Vatican that has the ceiling uh, that was so beautifully uh, painted. There's a good word for it. Thank you. Uh, By Michelangelo. And whenever we went into the Sistine Chapel, two things uh, occurred to me. First, the Sistine Chapel is very underwhelming. The second is that the Sistine Chapel is very overwhelming. I mean underwhelming because it's not very big. It's chapel. Um, You know, as we have a chapel over there, and it's smaller than the sanctuary or a basilica, so too this is a smaller space. I I kind of expected something much more uh, grandiose. But it's overwhelming, and the fact that you walk into this, you know, it's still a decent-sized space, but it's not huge. And you look up, and you see plastered across the ceiling the story of humanity. And one image up there that's often caught my attention, even before I, I even went there, but, but I specifically had to look for this whenever we were there, is a point called the creation of Adam. And Adam in Hebrew just means the human one. So it's the creation of the human one. And, and it's, it's an incredible picture in which there's God, old white man, long beard, it's Michelangelo's imagination of God, anyways, uh, who's surrounded by all of these heavenly beings and on clouds, and God is stretching out God's hand toward the human one, reaching. Then on the other side of the image is the human one, Adam, and, and he is kind of reclined, just kind of chilling on a rock, looking pretty lazy, and he's got his hand up there like this. And it's this moment in which God is reaching. Adam has this obligatory hand up like, all right, but I'm not going to go all the way. And right in between there, there's this ironically beautiful, unintentional crack that goes between the two fingers. Uh, not wasn't Michelangelo's intention, but uh, showing this uh, separation between God and humanity. And it's this really fascinating moment in which we see God reaching. And the testimony of the church is Adam who just kind of, I'll put my hand up there because I feel like I have to, but I'm not going to go all the way. This is, this is as much as you get from me, God. So I want you to do something really quick. You know, I like to get a little interactive and everybody groans a little bit. I want you to take your arm out and just, just stick your arm out there. Wherever you, wherever you like, up in the air, forward, side to side. Um, try not to intrude in anybody's space if you can help. But just stick your arm out there. Just feel that for a minute. Now I want you to take your arm as if there was a hand at the other end of your hand and reach for it as if you were to grab that hand. And I want you to feel that for a moment, what it feels like to reach There's intentionality there. It takes more effort. Our arm starts to get tired faster, and you want the preacher to stop talking so you can put your arm down. 
but feel that. All right, you can put your arm down. This, this right here, depicts the great love of God and the wrestling between love and indifference of humanity. One of the basic human desires, um, fundamental to human nature, has been summed up to be human beings want to know and to be known. To know and to be known. We, this is even, funny enough, the motto of my wife and I's uh, undergraduate alma mater, to know and be known. We have this innate desire to know information, especially about other people. That's why people tend to border on obsessive, uh, obsessive nature when it comes to the lives of celebrities, uh, because celebrities' lives are the easiest for us to know. Their lives are plastered over everything, all over media and wherever you turn your head. People have this innate desire to gain that information, to know more and more, even about other people. We also have the innate desire for others to know us. This is why social media took off so quickly and remains such a, uh, a strong uh, factor in our world. It's because it's the easiest way to let others know about us, to put ourselves out there and to say, this is who I am, world. Like, follow, share. But I must ask you, in thinking about this desire to know and to be known, where did it come from? Maybe another way to put that is, who first had that desire? It's not modern. It's not something that just arose in the 21st or even the 20th century. If we, as human beings, are created in the image of God, I wonder if God was the first one with the desire to know and to be known, to intimately know all of creation, and then to intimately be known by that creation. The best way that I have discovered so far in my life is the, the best way to get to know someone is through intimate relationship. Think about it for a moment. The people whom you know the best in your life, the people whom are, you are closest to in your life, are the people that you are in close proximity with and relationship with. And so it only makes sense that if we want to understand God more, the same God that Nicodemus is coming to understand, the same God that Jesus is trying to convey to the world, then we must draw nearer to God. We must be in relationship with God in order to get to know this God. And so the process of knowing and understanding God begins with what some call the scandal of grace. Beautiful phrase, the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace is that the transcendent God, the God who is more than our greatest imagination, is also the same God who would seek intimacy with us. That's John 3, 16 and 17 in a nutshell. For God so loved the world, loved, that God would love the world is a scandal. That he gave his only son, that's a scandal, to give his only son. 
so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. That is a scandal. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the scandal of grace, that the transcendent God who is more than our greatest imagination would be the same God who would seek intimacy with us. The scandal of humanity is that we might choose intimacy with God. The scandal of humanity is the most countercultural thing that we could ever do to pursue God intimately, to seek to understand God entirely, not just superficially. Because as we start to do so, we start to discover a God who is greater than the God we first created. St. Augustine once said, To fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek God, the greatest adventure. To find God, the greatest human achievement. So where do we find God? Where do we find this God who is so transcendent but yet would seek intimacy with us? That's the scandal of grace right there. God is already here. Right here, right now, right where you are, God is already present, seeking that intimacy, wanting to know and be known, just as we want to know and be known. That's the scandal of grace. And so my question to challenge us today is, are we willing to find God right where we are? Wherever we might be, because that's where God has decided to show up, right where we are. Are we willing to find God right where we are? Anybody ever heard the, the, the old uh, Joan Osborne song, What If God Was One of Us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. There's so much beauty in that song because God does show, decide to show up right where we are. And God is within each person around us. We are made in the image of God, and that image is inseparable. And so, as I think about are we willing to find God right where we are, I want us to think about what it means to encounter God right where we are. So if we can find God there, how then do we get to know God? Perhaps that comes as we show kindness to one another. As we seek to interact with the God peace that's in each and every one of us through kindness. So could we show kindness this week to those we encounter recognizing that God is in our midst? Could we draw nearer to God as we give of ourselves to others to know God more, to know God intimately? I think that that's a good place to start. So let us at least try to find God right where we are, to get to know God in the kindness we show one another. Let us seek the God who is more than our deepest imagination. And let us pray.